And as uh, you're grabbing a seat, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. If uh, first time with us or you haven't been with us in a while, we are uh, this fall journeying through the book of Mark and taking a look at this firsthand recording of the life of Jesus, of what he did, what he taught, and how he impacted lives then and how he's still impacting lives today. And uh, I think most of us have had some kind of experience with school in here and teachers and learning from people. And I've shared a couple of stories uh, over the past few weeks of teachers that have made impact in my life. But a lot of times we think of people teaching us. We think of, of, you know, uh, I go to school for this or I'm I'm learning from my parents or I'm learning from, from others. I'm learning from people at work. But something I want you to hear in here, and one of the things Jesus began to lay out to his followers, is that as much as I am teaching you, you are also now a teacher. And what I want to challenge you to begin to think of, especially as we move into the last part of this book, is not to just say, man, what is it that, that I've learned out of this? What questions have been percolating in my life and making me think about things differently? But how do I begin to teach these things to other people? How do I begin to communicate some of the changes in my understanding of who Jesus is and how I'm engaging with this faith in a way that can impact other people's lives? That's how Jesus went from a man who lived 2,000 years ago to still having impact today is because those who followed him, believed him, had such faith in him that they taught that to other people that eventually taught it to other people and other people and other people, and we sit here today as we are teaching it to you, and and now we're to go and to teach to other people. I love that our faith is not a static faith. It's not something that we just get to mark off, I've learned that, add that to the checklist, I am done with that. It is something that is alive and active in us, and one of the best ways that it stays alive and active is not by us receiving, but by us giving. And so I want to challenge you as we begin over the next few weeks to draw an end to the study of Mark is uh, not just reflect on what you've learned, but begin to reflect on what can I teach. Last week, we focused on some of the wisdom that Jesus shared around some different topics related to marriage. We talked about, you know, maintaining the innocence and excitement and dedication of a child and to really experience the faith. We have to come with that kind of innocence, excitement and dedication. Then we looked at these two contrasting stories of a wealthy man and a poor beggar, blind beggar, and how we learn that earthly material wealth does not gain access. It does not equate to spiritual influence. It's actually a willingness to set aside everything and follow God. And we're going to kind of now move into one of the last couple of real teaching chapters of Jesus. And today we're going to see a very kind of different teaching than what we've seen before. And before we jump into that, I want you to understand kind of where Jesus is and where the disciples are at this point. As much as he has been moving them deeper and deeper into wisdom, he's actually also been moving them physically toward a destination. And the destination that they are about to arrive at in Mark chapter 11 is Jerusalem. We're about to enter the Passover week, what is known in history as the Passion Week, the week before Jesus gives up his life, and he has been teaching them and prepping them for this week and this moment. They don't know it yet, but they're about to hit one of the biggest tests of their life. Uh, and they're going to be challenged. And this is why Jesus is putting them, putting wisdom into 
their lives. This is going to be an impactful week in their life, but it's also going to turn out to be a hugely impactful week in the life of all history. It is a big, big week. Chapter 11 of Mark sets the stage of the events that are known, as I mentioned, the past, the Passion Week. And Jesus comes into town. He's been predicting his death. He's saying there is something major coming. He's talked about the conflict that's going to ensue between him and the religious leaders and also the conflict of the spiritual and supernatural powers at work. It is a big week. Jesus knows he's going to die at the end of this week. I've had some big weeks in my life, like knowing something's coming. I remember that week before, like, getting married. Like, you're like, Saturday can't get here soon enough. I mean, there was just so much going on in that week. There were things we had to do, little parties we had to have, all these things that had to happen to get us to the final act of, like, actually getting married. When it actually happened, it was like, whew, all right, we're done. Like, it it was just this big lead-up to it. I remember the, the week before graduating from college, I remember knowing the last class I was going to take, the last final, and what it would feel like to turn that in and be done and walk out of college and be like, I am finished with this part. I mean, I remember what that week felt like. I remember the week before our first child, PJ, was born, and the anticipation of, like, what's going to happen, how is it going to happen, when exactly, all this kind of stuff, and this idea of, like, in just a few days, Katie and I are going to go from a family of two to a family of three, but even more so than that, in just a few days, this hospital is going to send us home with a baby that we have no idea what to do with and how to handle it. And we were like overwhelmed. Imagine if you knew that at the end of this week, you were going to die, that you were going to face an incredibly big trial in your life. And on next Friday, your life was going to end. I don't know how you might feel. I would be a little anxious. I'd be a little like, you know, what's going to happen? It's a big week in Jesus's life. And while this chapter starts out with this monumental event of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and the people crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It doesn't take long for the social tone and the political climate to shift. Chapter 11 starts with a beautiful moment, but very quickly things start to get tense. Jesus knows he's walking the most difficult days of his life, the end of his traditional presence on this earth, and he's about to walk right into a gruesome, torturous death, and I imagine he's a little anxious. And what we're going to see in the major part of this chapter is Jesus doing everything he can to drive home a couple of major points that he has been trying to pour into his followers over the last 10 chapters. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to experience the kingdom of God that he said he was bringing? But this time, Jesus does this in a different way. He's been doing this by performing miracles, by bringing people back to life, by casting out demons, feeding thousands. But in this chapter, he does something very different. He does it by actually cursing and rebuking things that go against his wisdom, his passion, and his character. It's not that he shows the right way. He points out the wrong way and says, this is not it. So I want us to look at these two examples of Jesus cursing and rebuking and seeing why he does this. Why lets his temper flare up in these last days before his death? And what does he teach us not to do 
And then what does he teach us to do if we really want to experience the kingdom of God? So if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter 11, we're going to jump in at verse 12. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. You can follow along here. But let me read Mark 11, 12 through 14. So the following day, so the following day is after he had come in on the donkey, the triumphant entry, he'd had a beautiful day. They went back outside the city and now they're coming back in. On the following day, they came from Bethany and he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then it says his disciples heard it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through this, this story seems a little odd and out of character for Jesus, right? I mean, he is a man who seems to rarely get frustrated, except for like with the Pharisees. He has performed countless miracles and regularly shows grace to those that are hurting and are even caught in sin. And he finds his little fig tree. He's hungry and it happens to not have any fruit. So he curses it. I I love in this passage where it says, And the disciples heard this. Like they were like, what's wrong with Jesus today? Like, who is this guy? What's going on with him? This isn't the same guy who turned water into wine when he was thirsty. This this isn't the guy. Why didn't he just bless this fig tree and make it produce the best figs in the world for all eternity? Like what's gotten in to Jesus? And this seems like a reasonable question and a reasonable thought. Why is Jesus doing this? It's not because he's hangry, all right? It's not this hunger, anger, and he just needs a Snickers to get back to who he is. That's not what's going on here. He's frustrated because he sees something here. He lets his temper flare up because this victory reminds him of one of the main things that is the enemy of the kingdom of God, and it's this, a disingenuous faith, a disingenuous faith. There's something you need to understand about this victory. If a fig tree has leaves on it, then it's a sign that it has already produced fruit. It's really almost impossible for a fig tree to produce this kind of leaves and flowers if it has not produced fruit. I didn't, I had to look this up, but a fig tree, the actual flower of a fig tree and the leaf of a fig tree comes out of the fruit. So if you see a fig tree with leaves on it, it's obvious, an obvious sign that it has produced fruit. And so as he draws closer to take a look and to satisfy his hunger, he realized that he has been tricked. There is no fruit here. It is all show. Now, it could have been something genetically wrong with this tree. I don't know. Maybe it never produced fruit. All it did was produce leaves. But Jesus saw this as an example to teach. This natural example turns into a spiritual teaching for Jesus. He grows angry at the multiple examples that he had come across in his life, not of, an, of disingenuous victories, but examples of disingenuous people who claim to follow God, yet do not follow his commands. His curse on the victory is a pronouncement of how much living a disingenuous life as one of his followers is not only damaging to other people, it can be damning for the kingdom of God. As I read through this passage, there were a few truths that jumped out at me that I want us to see and apply to our lives this morning. And the first one, verse 13, it says, I want us to see this, is that you and I, and you know this, we can make people think that we're something that we're not. We can make people think that we're something that we're not. And it says, he saw in the distance a fig tree and leaf. A disingenuous follower of Jesus puts on the trappings of Christianity 
without actually living it out. You know, we can say that we make, that we believe that we should love others, love our enemies, love our neighbors, ourselves, but actually live with hate in our heart. We can give the impression that we walk in humility and forgiveness when our hearts are really filled with pride and arrogance. We can say that we are driven by compassion and service, but that we make decisions based out of self-centered desires that protect our agendas. We can have the leaves that attract people and make it look like we have the fruit of the Christian life when the truth is reality is much different. And the sad part is this. Many of us think this is the normal way of living. This is just how everybody lives. Like we just put on a good front. We try to put the best foot forward. We make everything look all right, but we don't deal and actually get involved in the internal things that are going on. If we can make people believe that we're good people, honorable people, loving people, godly people, it really doesn't matter if it's true or not. This is the trap we fall into. And we just think it's normal. I'll live as a hypocrite because everybody lives as a hypocrite. And this is not what Jesus says. Jesus says this is an enemy to the kingdom of God. Too often we live our lives as if uh, no one can see what's really going on. We work very hard to put on a presentable exterior, a facade that's socially and spiritually and professionally acceptable. We work to keep people at a distance just far enough away so they can see our leaves and our flowers, but not close enough to realize that we don't have any real fruit in our life. And the truth is this. Nobody wins in this scenario. Nobody. You are frustrated trying to keep up appearances for something that you really aren't. And people get frustrated when they find out that it isn't really who you are. The facade crumbles. People get behind. They get close enough and realize there is no fruit there. Jesus says, don't live like this. Don't do this. The second truth that I see here is this, is that Jesus does not judge us from a distance, but in proximity. He said he went to see if he could find anything on this fig tree. One of the most fearful things for a person who's living a disingenuous life is when someone wants to get really close to them. When someone starts to, to want to have intimacy with them. If that fig tree could speak, I could imagine it was probably saying, no, no, Jesus, don't come any closer. Like, just look, enjoy the beauty of my leaves and my fruit. Do not come any closer. But Jesus didn't do that. Making things look good from a distance is the way of religion. It is never the way of Jesus. Religion tells us, look this way, do this way, approach, you know, create this appearance. But Jesus says, no, I'm coming close. I will be near. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has always dealt with people in proximity, not at a distance. He didn't lead from a pedestal and just the, to the crowds. He got involved. He got engaged. He just didn't tell people to follow them. He drew men and women next to him and said, walk in this life with me. Let's walk this life together. He got involved in people's lives in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Jesus taught us how to look, not, he didn't never taught us how to look good to others. Instead, he taught us how to be authentic, open, and transparent in our natures. When we, fart, start, when we start to follow Jesus, he probably did that at some point, you know. Everybody does. <laughs> when, uh, John, we already talked about it this morning. 
long story. Um, when, when we start to follow Jesus, he doesn't just take our word for things. He digs deep. He drives through the external and deals with the internal of who we are. And he doesn't do this like some big brother figure who's snooping through our lives, trying to find our weak points so they can take advantage of them and expose them. Instead, he does this for one reason. Jesus digs deep into our lives. He comes close to us so that you and I can experience true intimacy, maybe for the first time. That we can feel loved for who we actually are, maybe for the first time in our life. That we can feel genuinely accepted, flaws, cracks, everything. Be accepted for who we are, maybe for the first time in our life. You see, when Jesus comes close, he doesn't push away. He actually gets involved and gets connected. True intimacy. The third thing I want you to see in this passage is this, is Jesus doesn't come, or judgment doesn't come because of an imperfect nature, but because of a disingenuous nature. It says when he saw nothing but leaves, even though it was not the season for figs. I mean, this is, Jesus didn't get upset with the fig tree because it wasn't producing fruit. It actually wasn't supposed to be producing fruit at this time. It was out of season. He got angry and cursed it because it was fooling people into thinking it was bearing fruit when it wasn't. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you and I have to submit ourselves to unreasonable expectations and to living a perfect life, to make the right decision every time, to live with guilt and shame every time we mess up and fall short. That's not what this passage is saying. You didn't produce fruit, you're out. That's not what this is. He got mad at this tree because it was fooling people. It was trying to act like it was something that it was not. It wasn't an unreasonable expectation. But here's what we have to do. When we follow Jesus, it does mean that we have to submit ourselves to what we might consider unreasonable expectations to allow him to examine our heart and examine our motives and our true nature to really get to know us. It is opening up our lives and revealing our struggles, our fears, our shortcomings to him so that he can stand with us and help us walk and move forward from those. One of the major lessons that Jesus is teaching here is this. The source of what really causes harm to our faith and to the kingdom he is building, true harm doesn't come when we fall short, when we have a season in our life when we don't produce fruit or when we mess up. That's not when true harm comes to the kingdom. True harm comes when we act like we don't <coughs> when we act like we don't have any struggles or fears. True harm comes when we act like we know all the answers when our hearts are really filled with questions. True harm comes when we present an unattainable perception of what it means to follow Jesus to those that are looking for hope and it turns them away because we've created a life that is unrealistic and unattainable. That's what causes harm to the faith. That's what kills Christianity. Not outside forces, not me messing up, not me falling to sin as much as God doesn't want us to do that. What truly eats away at the core of Christianity is when we act like we're something that we're not. When we act inauthentic. It kills it. It dries up the life. And when people come close, they see that we're not really what we say we are. And they run away. And they go, why are you trying to fool me? That's what brings harm. Jesus did not curse this tree because he was upset that it wasn't bearing fruit. He cursed it because it fooled those that were hungry into thinking it had something 
to offer. And you and I got to be careful not to do the same thing. The fig tree gave false hope to those who are in need of real hope. And the way that you and I give real hope to people is to be honest about our real struggles, our real shortcomings, and the fact that Jesus loves us even in spite of those. Not because we've earned it, not because of this facade we put on, but because we've been authentic. Stop pretending. Stop acting like you're something that you aren't. If this isn't a season that you're bearing fruit for the kingdom, admit it. Invite Jesus into your questions and your concerns. You know what? I think Jesus actually shows more favor to someone who calls himself an atheist and is honest with their doubts and concerns than someone who calls themselves a Christian and pretends that they know everything and don't have any questions. I think Jesus shows more favor to the authentic than the disingenuous. Faith is not the absence of questions. It is the invitation to ask Jesus for answers to your questions. That's why he got mad at this fig tree. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus is not having a good day. So he curses this fig tree and they move on to the temple and we see him do something else. Look at Mark 11, verse 15, and we'll read from there. It says, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus' angst doesn't end with the fig tree. When he arrives in, in Jerusalem, specifically in the temple, he goes off. I mean, if the, if the disciples heard what he said to the fig tree, they certainly saw what he did in the temple, and they were like, all right, something, you know, is going on in Jesus' life. Why is he doing this? What I want you to see here is, for us to fully understand this, we have to understand what the temple was, the meaning and history behind it. The temple was designed with one purpose. It was designed as a place for God to meet with his people. The very core of it, it was a meeting place between God and his people. But the tradition and the Jewish culture and the religious leaders of that day to turn it into something far different. Hope had been replaced with obligation. Forgiveness had been replaced with a payment. The priest had created this rig system. Typically, you would bring a, a lamb in a Passover for a sacrifice, your, your best lamb, a, a lamb with no spot or no blemish. And you would bring it and you would offer it as a sacrifice. You may have tended to it all year. But now the, the priests were saying, we are the only ones who can approve the, the lamb. And so can you imagine what they did? They began to, to look at people's lambs and say, oh, you know, that one's close, but it's just not good enough. But we have one for here that's for sale. So why don't you buy this one? And so they had exchanged the, the practice of someone bringing their own sacrifice to this corrupt commerce nature of selling lambs for sacrifice. And then on top of that, everybody was under Roman occupation. They were required to spend Roman money and carry Roman currency. But the temple said, we will not accept Roman currency. We will only accept Hebrew money. And so what did they do? They set up a currency exchange booth like you have at the, the airport. And what does the airport do? They charge you a fee to exchange your currency. And you know what the priests did? They charged these people a fee to exchange their currency to pay 
for the lamb that they had to buy to create a sacrifice. This was a rigged, corrupt system of sacrifice. And Jesus walks in and he sees the corruptness of this and he is overwhelmed. He's like, this can no longer go on. This is what infuriated Jesus. He saw that the religious system had become so corrupt that it was even corrupting the very nature of how people were experiencing the forgiveness of God. Instead of the temple being a place of meeting with God, it was driving a wedge between God and his people. As I read through this, there are just a couple of things that jumped out to me that I want to share with you today. And the first one is this. I want us all to hear this today. The forgiveness of God is not for sale. The forgiveness of God is not for sale. It says that he drove out those who sold and those who bought. One of the quickest ways to corrupt the nature of God's forgiveness is to try to limit the access to it. When any religion or any person starts creating man-made barriers to receive the grace that God has freely poured out to all people, we become as corrupt as the priest and the money changers. And you may think, well, I would never do this. I I want those that I love to experience forgiveness as much as me. And we're we're pretty open with forgiveness and wanting people to receive that forgiveness, but we become many times just as guilty when we come across people who we happen to maybe not like the sin that they struggle with versus the sin that I struggle with. And we're like, I don't know that this person is worthy of forgiveness. My, my sin wasn't quite that bad. I didn't do that much. I didn't give in to that. God doesn't judge me like he judges them. And we start categorizing people. Or maybe we're upset that they haven't shown enough shame and, and repentance and and felt the guilt of their sin yet. And we got to make sure they feel that a little bit longer. And they got to carry that burden a little bit longer before they can experience the forgiveness of Jesus. We, we can be very quick to withhold the grace of God. And when I start putting conditions on God's forgiveness, it is like I am the priest selling the lambs, just as corrupt, saying what you're doing is not enough. You have to do what I did. I have to make the for you. God's forgiveness is not for sale. One of the most telling details in this passage when it says, I, I love the details of scripture. And, and one of them, he says this, you saw what it said there. He overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. Like, why would that be in there? Like, why did he pick on the pigeon people? Right? I mean, why is he, why didn't he talk about the lambs or anything like this? But there's a detail here that you need to understand because even in the rigidity of the law that God had provided, that said you had to bring a lamb to sacrifice, to show repentance for your sin, even in the rigidity of that law, he gave grace. The law said this, if you did not have a lamb or you could not afford a lamb for your sacrifice, then you could offer two small pigeons instead. Now, pigeons were just as plentiful in Jerusalem as they are in New York City, all right? It would not have been difficult to come across two small pigeons in that city, just like it would not be here. But do you see what they did? They, they weren't allowing even you to bring in your own pigeons. They were monetizing even the grace of God that he had given to that moment. Even the grace, they were limiting everything. And I want you to hear and let us understand today that the grace of God, the forgiveness of God is not for sale. It is not a commodity. It never has been, and it never will be. 
And when we start thinking of it that way, either in our lives or in other people's lives, we are corrupting the system of God that he had put in place. The second thing I want you to see is this, is the presence of God is also not for special people. Verse 17 says, You have turned a house of prayer into a den of robbers. The temple's primary purpose wasn't intended to be for sacrifice. It was actually to be a sanctuary for people to meet God through prayers. But instead, the religious leaders had turned this sanctuary of peace and hope into a place of inaccessibility and injustice. They were robbing people of what God had promised them, which was his presence. Again, this is an easy trap to fall into for followers of Jesus and his church. If we are not vigilant, we can start defining who is worthy to come and who isn't, who is allowed to worship and who isn't. We can elevate the penalty of some sins while we diminish the view of others. We can steal the gift of God's presence in people's lives by telling them that there are certain things they have to do, certain ways they have to do it, certain acts they have to bring, certain statements they have to agree with, and this is injustice. The presence of God is not for those of us who are special. The presence of God is for everybody. Everyone. Because the truth is, no one sitting in here is special in God's eyes because everyone is special and unique in God's eyes. When we start thinking of ourselves as better than others, we forget this fact, that none of us are worthy of God's presence. Yet he gave his joy and peace and presence to all people. So Jesus has these moments, right? Cleansing the temple, cursing the fig tree, and then they go home. And then the next morning happens, and this is where I want us to end today very quickly. Mark 11, 20 through 25, it's the next day. They're walking into the city again. And it says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. All right, this tree was like, like it had been burnt up. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I don't, I don't know if Peter was like excited. Like, look, it actually happened. And Jesus answered them, and this is where he, Jesus is in a little better mood today, all right? He's not cursing things. He's like giving them some instruction. He's like, look, have faith in God. You saw what I did yesterday. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. He gives us the remedy to a disingenuous faith and corrupt sacrifice here. His encounter with the fig tree comes full circle, and, he, and again, this better mood, Jesus is like, let me tell you now what to do. Let me show you what you shouldn't do. Don't be disingenuous. Don't corrupt things. But here are two things you can do. First is this believe. Would you believe me? Would you believe in God? Not just in words, not just even in external actions, but would you actually at the heart of who you are, believe that God can move any mountain? God can overcome any circumstance in your life. God can break through any wall, any barrier that you are facing. 
He can bring hope when it seems hopeless. If you believe. If you open up your heart and allow God to actually work. That intimacy to become a part. Actually believe. But then the second thing he says is this. Don't withhold and don't create any barriers to forgiveness. Forgive people. If somebody wrongs you, if you got something against somebody, forgive them. The best way for forgiveness to flow from God to you and to other people is for you just to allow it to flow freely through you. Not to put any conditions or any barriers. He was like, that temple who he knew in just a few days was really going to be meaningless. It was just going to be a structure. He is saying the way you truly allow forgiveness to flow is from God to you to other people. Forgive, no matter what they've done, no matter what you'll face. And in just a few chapters, we're going to see Jesus live this out. He's hanging on a cross, taking on the sins of the world. And what are his words? Father, forgive them. Forgive. Forgive. He's allowing it to flow through him to other people. We, we could spend a, a week on just these verses here, these last verses, but I really want you to hear and know this today. To overcome a disingenuous faith or the corruptness of a sacrifice that we start holding and creating barriers to God is to believe and forgive. Trust God, believe him with all your heart, and don't hold back forgiveness. My question for you today is this. Where is a corrupt or disingenuous spirit beginning to take root in your life? Will you identify that? Will you see? Are you just trying to put an exterior on and say, I don't want to look the part anymore. I actually want to believe what God says. I want to stop acting and pretending, and I truly want to live out of belief. Or would you look at where your life or you're holding back Maybe there's areas you think God even can't forgive you. Or there's people that you can't forgive. And when you allow that sacrifice that Christ made for us to overflow into every part of who you are and then pour out into the lives of others. Are you trying to act like something that you aren't? Are you not being honest with God, yourself and others? Are you trying to control God? Let go of that this morning. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Father, these are hard truths today. As we look at uh, this nature of Jesus who let his temper flare against things that were enemies to the kingdom. May we, when we see those in our own life or the life of our fellowship or even the life of other believers, may we allow our temper to flare and push back on those as well. When we see ourselves living disingenuous lives, would we get angry and expose it and even curse that and say, I don't want that in my life at all. When we find ourselves withholding forgiveness in our own life or in the life of others, would we call it what it is, corruptness? And would we clear it out and let your forgiveness flow through us and experience it fully and allow others to experience it as well? God, allow us to believe and receive and then to give forgiveness to those that are in need of it as much as we are. God, allow these truths to hold firm in our life today. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.